Hello, welcome to episode 17 of the Warfighter Training and Simulation Podcast. Colin, welcome back from iTech. Oh yes, hot off the plane, thank you. To be fair, I know we're going to talk about it in the news section, we're going to have a decent download, but it did look like it was from afar, from my LinkedIn experience of iTech, there was some interesting conversations happening, some interesting comp- new companies that I could see, and some cool kind of concepts and products. It seemed pretty good to me. Yeah, a, a great week. We'll cover it towards the end because uh, Andy's going to give us a download. But <laughs> far more importantly, you've been a little bit quiet because I think you've had a new launch of a new large language model, haven't you? A new little AI <laughs> chatbot. Um, uh, now, now for, for for listeners that don't know, I think this little chatbot has been in about it's been in development for nine months. Is that right? <laughs> right. And arrived last week. Yes, Eleanor Joy right, arrived of the, the the female persuasion, which is, yeah, which yes. is great. And 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 what tell us a bit more about this this sort of language model. You sort of how long do they take to train these language models? I'll tell you when I finish training one of them. <laughs> I don't know, mate. My understanding is they take about 18 years yeah. to sort of get to some sort of level of maturity where you can act, they're actually useful. Is, is that sort of correct? I'm going to stop this analogy going or this dick going, but I, I you know, it's, it was good. Thank you very much for your concern, Colin. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased. You know, it's great you have a, a third. Yeah. And, and now what's wonderful about it is it's actually been around for a week now and my, my oldest has now got a cold and my middle child has, has been ill for the last two days. So oh, living the dream, as I always say when anyone asks me, how's life? Well, yes, and thank you. It brings back great memories of raising my own little chatbots. Who, who, you know, <laughs> I'm only halfway there, so that's great. So at this stage, it's important to mention the people that made this possible, which is Improbable Defence. This is the last episode of their sponsorship, and I've got to say a heartfelt thank you to them for the support that they've given us throughout the season. We've done two interviews with them, one a deep dive with their CEO and also then a deeper dive with their kind of tech director about you know the tech and their, their aspirations for their platform. So the links to those episodes will be in the show notes. And I've got to say, I'm looking forward to seeing how they grow over the next few years. Moving on to our guest for this week, Luke Shabro, who we, we actually spoke to a while back, really was partly some of the inspiration for this, which is something called the US Army Mad Scientist Program. Part of what they do is a podcast, and I, I've been listening to that. It's sort of quite a wide remit. It's under the Tradoc Army Futures in the US. And as ever, you know, us Brits do like to look over the pond and and see what we can emulate of our of our cousins. So so certainly a lot of inspiration there. And some of the subject matters were really interesting. So really interesting to talk to Luke about his experience of how do you drive innovation through large organizations, his view on how it works, and some of the interesting ways they, I guess, generate the topics, generate the thought that goes through the different arms of the U.S. Army. Yeah, and there's there's lots I'd like to talk about, but actually I think it's this interview is all about learning about the Army Man Scientist concept. So I think we'd, we'd let's leave the kind of our analysis to the kind of the middle of the podcast. But um, Luke was a great guy. It took us a while to get this interview, but really happy that we did. And here he is. Okay, so we're very pleased to introduce Luke Shabro of the Army Mad Scientist. Luke, how are you? Fantastic. Uh, glad to finally be with you guys. And we've been working on getting together for a while. Yes, events have got in our way. I think fate's against us. But <laughs> for those that don't know you, can you just give us a bit of a background on how you got into this position? Yeah, absolutely. I actually started out as a uh, career intelligence analyst and officer and really worked in the United States Navy as active duty for eight years. After that, I finished up college over at Old Dominion University in Virginia and then decided 
to uh, start working in national security as a civilian and actually ended up with the Army of all places. Really enjoyed my time with the Army, kind of learning from down in the tactical through operational up to strategic and really started initially working on intelligence support to exercises and still in somewhat of a traditional intelligence role. And then in 2015, I started working in the futures game and really with U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command G2 Futures, started working on some futures war games for Unified Quest, uh, which at the time was General Milley's kind of future war game, and then really got into the Army Mad Scientist Initiative where I started. And so we really focus in Army Mad Scientist on looking at the future in a different way and trying to look at those variable futures by talking to people outside of just the Army. So really engaging across the board and as we always try to say, harness the intellect of the nation, or as I should say on this podcast, harness the intellect of the nation and our partners and allies. So what we've done is work across academia, tech, industry, but also within military and government. And as I said, with the allies and partners to kind of envision those different futures. And so getting into futures was not something I did really what I would say on purpose. It was just kind of somewhere I ended up, but being an intelligence analyst pretty much since I've been an adult has really kind of led me up to this in that you always have to kind of think about what are those variable futures? What could happen? What kind of confidence do you place in that? And what courses of action could you see as a result? So that's kind of a long-winded way of how I got here. And it's it's just been an absolute privilege working for the Army and, and the nation and really thinking about things in a different way. And with Army Mad Scientists, I always say I have, I have the best job there is and people are always excited to hear about the program. Yeah, and I won't be ashamed to say that I did start listening to the podcast and that was definitely some of the inspiration for what we're doing. So, you know, thank you. And I think the goal of this session is really to try and take more learning points from what you're doing. But could you just go into a bit about how the Army Man Scientist program might differ from what Army Futures has done done in the past? What are you trying to do in terms of the event? How's a podcast fit in? Is obviously we see that over here, but we don't necessarily see a lot of the underlying things. First of all, thank you so much, and we're really appreciative of anyone who listens to the podcast, and we're really trying to do that to reach out. Where we've differed from, and actually I would say that Army Futures Command in a lot of ways is as a result of work that's been done in Training and Doctrine Command G2 Futures and Mad Scientists. So the learning and exploration that we did looking at the future and character of warfare especially, and those lessons getting put out to General Milley and a lot of other senior leaders is really what led to Army Futures Command being stood up and the idea that we have to approach the future in a different way. And the way that we're currently set up as an Army is not the way that we can just continue to go forward. If, as General Shinseki had said, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance a lot less. So we really tried to be different because the program really stood up in the mid-2000s. And initially, it was just kind of a program to look at what's the worst case scenario? What are these divergent and a lot of times dystopian futures that could happen? And 
uh, it was originally stood up by the uh, G2 at the time, Maxie McFarland, and he had looked at the problem that we were having in Iraq and Afghanistan at that time with IEDs. And so we saw kind of all these lessons learned over again, and we had to stand up organizations like Jaido and JT Coic and all these different organizations just to deal with this massive problem. But when we looked at it, we said, why, why is this a problem that we didn't see coming? There were signals from other examples from all the way back to Vietnam to what we saw in wars in former Yugoslavia. We saw the examples for what would become the IED issue. The question was, how do we get left to bang? And what he looked at was getting outside of the echo chamber of the army and the wider DOD and bringing in other people to start thinking about these problems and disrupting our own thinking. And so originally they brought in a lot of scientists and engineers from across areas like NASA Langley Research Center, the FBI, State Department, just all across the federal government and military. Looking back at a lot of that work, it was really good, but it was also very self-contained. All the work was behind closed doors and not shared widely. And so it never really permeated uh, with senior leadership or people who were in a position to do anything. With the drawdowns in Iraq and Afghanistan, the program kind of shuttered. And then in 2015, my boss now, who's actually getting ready to retire uh, just in a couple of weeks here, but Tom Greco, the G2 for Tradoc now, was looking at what was happening in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, uh, what was happening in Syria at the time, kind of the Chinese revolution in military affairs, and was saying, okay, the character of warfare is changing. We've been very deep into counterinsurgency and counterterrorism for the last 20 years. And we're talking about having to face pacing threats and near-peer adversaries again in the near future. Are we ready for this? And there's a lot of trends, technologies that go into that change in character or warfare. So how do we get ahead of that, understand it, think differently, and then bring that learning into the overall army and then wider Department of Defense? The work that goes on, as you kind of alluded to, behind the scenes, what we do is a lot more than the podcast. So the podcast comes out and uh, I love working on the podcast. It's one of my labors of love, but there's a lot of work involved with that. And people are usually surprised to find that there's just generally myself and my co-host, Matt Sanisbert, who work on that. Um, Matt does all the magic editing. We don't have a large team working on this. So that in itself is a lot of work. And there's really a lot of backbone behind that because we don't just pick random guests or line up who's the most senior military leader. We're trying to find people who are thinking about, writing about, talking about topics that range from, again, trend or technology, but also trends outside of that, political, societal, economic. We need to understand a lot about the future operational environment, and it kind of expands out beyond the military. So if it expands out beyond the military or the M in DIME or PNISI or whatever acronym you want to use, then you need to start engaging with the whole of societies that are involved in that operational environment. We kind of really try to target how do we get a wide swath of people that have varying experiences and a lot of people who have nothing to do with the military, not just the U.S. military, but any military, because they have varying ideas and concepts about these areas. And so that's one aspect of it. But we also have, I always plug for the uh, Mad Scientist Laboratory, which is our blog 
blog. So we publish once a week, quick read about the future. Over 50% of our submissions are guest submissions. So we have folks that come in and talk about any topic that might be future related that we can actually allow them to have a medium to kind of talk about that, which really usually isn't available in a lot of places. Additionally, we have our conferences that we do. So just this past fall, we had our Back to the Future conference. Please do not sue us, Paramount or whoever (laughs) the studio is behind that. But we looked at Back to the Future using history to forecast. And so we brought in a blend of both historians and futurists to talk about how we use history to think about the future. And so we don't use historical analogies just to do a one-for-one comparison, but how does it help frame our thinking? How does it help frame the challenges that we face? Because sometimes we tend to get into, and I say we as the West, so to speak, we tend to get into a mindset of these challenges are so unique. We've never dealt with anything like this before. You can look at things like chat GPT right now that everyone is talking about. You can look at robotics and autonomy across the battlefield. There's all these emerging things and we tend to think, oh, this is just so unique to 2023. Well, in reality, there are some perspectives that we can look at where similar challenges were faced in the past. So we had that conference, but we've also had conferences on robotics, AI, and autonomy, bioconvergence, also looked at learning in 2050. And so we usually partner with an academic institution who's really focused in that area. So we've had a longtime partnership with uh, Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies, Arizona State University, West Point, of course. So really working with a lot of different academic institutions. And the last conference we had, we actually got to go to the National Museum of the U.S. Army, which was pretty awesome. So we continue to work with a lot of different folks across academia. And that includes not just those universities, but a lot of think tanks and different fellowships and programs as well, too. That's some of the work that's done. But additionally, we do even more um, when it comes to writing contests, other crowdsourcing ventures, just trying to reach out and really get an idea of what other people are thinking. So one of our first proclaimed army mad scientists is Dr. Jamie Canton, who uh, is the CEO for Global Futures. And uh, we're always appreciative of Jamie Canton because he actually gives us time for a guy that gets paid a lot of money by other organizations to give that, but he wants to help the country and has worked with us. But one thing that we stick with that he's always said was what we're trying to do is disrupt ourselves before we're disrupted. So we have to have kind of this disruptive thinking outside of convention and really challenge our assumptions. So that's a lot of the work that takes place in mad scientists is taking a look at the defined doctrine and concepts. And the question always is, what if we're wrong? Hold that thought on disruption, what I took away from what you're doing. And it's fantastic to hear about the sort of fast paddling underneath the surface, but it's the openness. And in the past where we've kept things on on lockdown, it's very easy to get stovepied thinking and sharing the problems is about how you get the innovative thought. Also, your reach out to non-traditional sources is interesting. There's no harm in a bad idea, is there? No, and and one of my favorite thinking approaches or critical thinking approaches is worst idea possible, which is when you're looking at a problem and you just get stuck, just look for the worst solution possible. And then you can kind of backwards plan from that and say, okay, this is what we don't want to do. Now that might inspire what we would like to do. But yeah, I think it's important to engage with those outside audiences because they're going to have a very different perspective. And I 
I know echo chambers become a buzzword, but the thing about it is I can only experience so much as a guy who went through as a Navy veteran and then worked in pretty much national security my whole career. So there's only so many experiences and certain biases I will have in that, but there are people from outside of that that are going to offer some really unique perspectives. And that's what we have to get after. That's great. And it's something that I hope to see moving out of just America as well, other countries doing something similar to Army Mad Scientists. But how do you, or have you seen it as a challenge generating this new and outside the box kind of thought leadership? How do you then take it the extra step further to actually ensure it's providing value to influence defense, influence decision-making procurement? What's the next step and how have you tried to bridge that? No, I think that's a great question because I've even been accused in the past, or rather the organization has been accused of being an idea factory. Great. Another sort of pseudo think tank that comes up with ideas, then what? I think that's a really important question because we have to balance between reaching out to those wider audiences to being disruptive, but then what are the implications then for the army, for the fighting force, for how we fight, how we train, and how we maintain readiness? So that's a really important question. And what we try to do is we have great relationships across the army, especially with the major commands, working with Army Materiel Command, obviously Army Futures Command, working with Forcecom, with the active force as well. And so reaching across the entirety of the army, we don't just explore things just to explore them. So it's all really interesting and disruptive and everything else, but we don't just explore topics just as, okay, this sounds like fun. It is fun. However, I have to look at through a lens of, okay, what is the army most concerned about? Not just right now, but what will they be concerned about in the future? And so we have to look at things. So looking at some of the operational concepts that get constructed, you look at multi-domain operations. Okay, what are the pieces of multi-domain operations that are going to be impactful? And how can we learn about, again, those future trends and technologies to then influence what we can do best? And some of that is through the work that we contribute to in the future operational environment. Some of that is working directly with the capability developers, working directly with the centers of excellence where all the training is taking place, with the doctrine being built on that. But some of it is just anticipatory. We have to anticipate where the army is going to come into roadblocks because if we focus on problems that are maybe just listed, even, even just as the pure priorities for SecDef, Sec Army, if we just went with those and we didn't expand beyond, then we wouldn't be doing our job. So for example, when we had our robotics AI and autonomy conference in 2017, it's not that nobody was talking about robotics, but it was not at all the hot button issue that it is now. Um, it was something that we wanted to explore heavily. When we talked about bioconvergence in 2018, Biotech was not something that was widely talked about across the Army, except in some niche communities. So we wanted to get ahead of that. Talking about learning in 2050, we're seeing that manifest now in the ways that we look at tailored, targeted, customized learning, the ways that we see enhancement biologically for both improvement of performance, but also for protection of soldiers. And we actually talked about pandemics in 2018 as well. So really looking at what is happening, and it takes a lot of horizon scanning and thinking about, but then it takes the military aspect to then put that military hat back on or that DOD hat back on and say, how does this apply? Or what are we looking for? 
So there was an interesting thought that I wanted to pick up from what you said previously, which is we hear a lot about this, how do we just disrupt things? But it's all very well doing that. But if you do damage to current operations or you, you go half cocked and it fails, you should do, do more damage than... So how do you address that? How do you disrupt without destroying? Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And um, it actually kind of relates back to what I think about a lot with personal disruption, which um, like on my LinkedIn header says, you know, respectfully disruptive. Adam Grant had a really good article that said, and I apologize if you guys have to censor me, but uh, said you don't have to be an asshole to be disruptive. And so the point being that there are certain things in the U.S. military that are going to be pretty close to zero fail. Now, I think zero fail a lot of times is a misnomer because anything can fail, but they are extremely high impact and potentially high risk. But you have to maintain operating within those concepts. So you can't, as you said, you can't just break everything. And there's no possible way that we could start from scratch. There's no way that we could say, okay, let's forego the current operating force for this new look. In reality, it's always going to be as you're shaping the future force, it's going to be a blended force. And the same goes kind of for concepts as well, because while we can pick apart when we're being disruptive, what we don't want to do is undermined or chip away at the foundations behind that. So I think first principle thinking is really important in that because you can look at first principle thinking. A lot of times people think of disruption and it's thought of as, okay, tear it all down. Let's, you know, it's almost anarchic. Um, let's burn it and, you know, start over. Or we're saying that everything about this is wrong and it's highly destructive. But disruption doesn't necessarily mean to then tear it down or to even break it, but to break apart maybe some of the processes within that, maybe some of the aspects of it where there can be change. Because if you're not willing to, to examine those and question them, then it becomes, it's it's no longer a concept. It's no longer even TTPs. It is now a religion. It's a belief. You can't question it. It is holy. And so I think what your question was, and I'm not answering it very well, but really there is a balance between understanding what exists. And sometimes even within that disruption, you can recognize that you don't need to tear it down. I can look at two concepts like MD and JADC2 and say that those are concepts that fundamentally are sound, that we would want to continue to use because it makes the most sense in a contested environment across all domains. So that makes sense. But there might be aspects of it that I look at and say, we need to disrupt this, or at very least, we need to challenge some assumptions we're making. Maybe it's in regards to fires and reconnaissance. Maybe it's in regards to maneuver. But we have to be willing to challenge those things. But as you said, not turn around and break it all because it's really easy to tear all these things down. There's a difference between constructive criticism, as you would think about it, and just being critical. There's a part there where if I came to my bosses and I was being highly disruptive, what they're going to ask then is, what's the solution? What's the alternative? <laughs> Don't just bring me problems. Yeah. What is then the solution alternative? And it's another part where, again, you have to be careful about destroying things because the people who probably have those alternatives and solutions are the same ones that you're interacting with and disrupting things. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's important not to burn those bridges. Reminds me of a boss I had once who, if you, took, if you took a problem to him, he would ask you what the solution is. And then he would turn around and say, Go on, make it happen then. So that, that, that put people straight. 
Exactly. And there and there's a lot of people and organizations out there that consider themselves disruptive, but don't want to do the um, not so fun part of building on the back end and augmenting and changing. They just want to say this is broken. The quote that Colin and I were talking about prior to recording this podcast was necessity is the mother of innovation. And so I've got two questions for you. Well, one point and then one question. But think that when it comes, there's a necessity to do something. Let's then let's take World War II, the invasion of northern France. So Normandy, that no one had ever done something at that scale before. So it's innovative. It was going to be obviously trying to be disruptive to what the Germans were trying to do. But of course, there's lots of risk to that. And I think when it, when there's a necessity, people are more comfortable with taking risks. And I just wanted to point to that because I think that prior to the D-Day landings, not a lot, a lot of people realized that there was also a Dieppe raid uh, which is in 1942, where basically the Allies test ran D-Day. They landed at Dieppe in order to try and capture the German-occupied port there. It was an utter, utter abject failure. And a lot of very, very good young lives were lost, predominantly Canadian, actually, as it happens. However, what they learned from that raid, that failure, completely influenced the decision for D-Day landings to allow them to decide, well, hang on a minute, probably trying to capture a a port is a bad idea. Let's look for other solutions. Let's innovate. Let's disrupt. Let's create pontoon you know, bridges, etc. Whatever it may, it may have been. And I'll pause there before I move on to the next question. I just think it's an excellent point because, as you said, necessity is the mother of all innovation. And one of the things that we always look at for, and hopefully the army doesn't, you know, give me my marching orders out for saying this, but a lot of times the Marines are looked at as one of the most innovative forces. <laughs> Why are they looked at as the most? Because they have the smallest budget. They have the smallest force in cases of need, they have plenty. So when they, one thing General Mattis pointed out before was when they get to the beach, there's nowhere else to go. It's forward. (laughs) And so how do you figure out how to get through those obstacles? Because there is no turning back. When you're on the beach, you're on your own, not meaning on your own individually, but the Marines are on their own and trying to navigate through some serious adversity. So I think that's an organization that becomes extremely nimble and agile when it comes to transformation and innovation because they have to be. They don't get any other choice. They're not going to get a fatter budget. They're not going to get more forces. They're going to have to deal with what they have. This is completely verboten. I should, you know, never probably say this publicly, so I will get <laughs> I will absolutely get flayed for this, but sometimes I imagine what it would be like for the US to cut our defense budget in half and just see what we could come up with because one of the interesting books I read recently uh, called Dying to Learn showed that through a number of case studies, militaries innovate and learn much better when they're in lean years, so to speak, or they're in dire straits, as it were, um, without plenty. And in those quote unquote fatter years where budgets are high and spending is high, they don't actually learn and adapt as much because there's there's almost a comfort in that. But when you get to the necessity, uh, it becomes incredible things you can come up with in those spaces. And that brings me really beautifully on to my question, which is going back to the quote, necessity is the mother of innovation. You're running these events, podcasts, conferences, et cetera, to generate those outside the box thinking. And I don't expect you to have the answer to this. This is more an open question to us, but how can we create artificial necessity? When we have these conversations, how do we create the scenarios or the backdrop to to force 
not just kind of academic outside the box thinking, but practical outside the box thinking? It's tough. And I know, you know, this is open ended. And I think we all have, we all have this question right now. And I think it's like kind of imagining yourself if I said, Tom, I'm going to put you in the woods, you're going to have nothing but two MREs, a knife, and uh, we'll, we'll give you a life straw. And you have to survive for two weeks, and then we'll pick you up at the end of that. Okay. If I told you that scenario, you might come up with some novel solutions, some ideas, some thoughts, but you're going to probably come up with a whole lot more if you were actually physically in that situation, because there's a lot, and this really goes back to human evolution, right? Our brains operate in these circumstances where it's fight or flight, where it's life or death. And we tend to recognize existential threats and how do we, and how do we counter and, and deal with those threats? So it's, it's hard to then inspire that without. And, and there's been a lot of attempts. We've attempted. Uh, we try it all the time with storytelling because I could talk about those technology and trends all the time. But with storytelling, I can contextualize it. I can make you more feel it, understand it, be a part of that future battle space and things like that. But it's still hard. It's still, as you said, it's artificial. Now, it's horribly unfortunate. All, all we want to see is see Ukraine win and for Russia to, you know, withdraw. But the one very slim positive out of this whole scenario is the recognition by the rest of the world, more specifically the West and NATO and allied countries, but the recognition of the threat that exists, not only from Russia, but the rising threat of China and really recognizing that. And you're kind of seeing a response to that now where you're seeing the CHIPS Act that took place, a lot of reshoring of capabilities. We're seeing increased defense postures across both NATO allies, across the Quad. The Philippines over the last month has been just surprising at how defensively or more highly defensively postured they've become. And so we're seeing that, but that didn't happen until February 2022 when Russia went in because that Threat, no matter how much the intelligence community, how much the national security ecosystem could sing it on high that this was a major threat and that these nations, especially between Russia and China, but also North Korea, Iran, represented this threat, that was tough for people to imagine, still kind of in reality on the peace dividends of the end of the Cold War. Because while we've seen Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, and our UK partners have been such a major part of that as well, if you look at the nature of both of our forces, the general population didn't feel that. Folks who were in the service and had family members in the service, they felt that those conflicts, they understood it, there was sacrifice there, but the general population has not had to face anything like that in a very long time. And so this is the first time that it looked like also previous fighting was in the Middle East and in mountainous terrain and things like that. And it looked like a very foreign place to most Americans and, and probably Brits as as well. Then you see cruise missiles flying into Kiev and it looks like your neighborhood getting blown up. It looks like conflict in the kind of city that you grew up in or town. And so it becomes very real, very quick. And that's where we've seen, I think we've seen more activity in terms of innovation, production ramping up, defensive posturing, as I said, in the last year than we've seen probably in the previous five years to that at least. The recent events obviously sharpen the minds a lot. Quite a lot of grassroots stuff, stimulus, and, and the ideas sort of spring up. And then we, we talked about this in another, in another episode, 
And how does that leap into actually propagating through large organizations? So, you know, when you've got these disruptive ideas, how do you actually get them into the organizations and get that innovation through and to use? You just tell people and you say, this is a good idea. And then everybody gets on board. It's really <laughs> easy in America. I don't know what's so difficult. It's, it's really, <laughs> really easy in America. No, no, it's, it's still such a wicked problem. Easy. Wicked problem because, um, you know, one of our episodes, we talked about innovation at the edge and we had a hundred first airborne has Eagle works. We had from third, we had the Marn think tank, JSOC X. There's all sorts of great grassroots, as you said, innovation happening. And a lot of times this was happening before these organizations stood up. They're just finally getting spaces to actually do this. And some of it is done through codification and things like official competition. So 18th Airborne Corps, Dragon's Lair, not Dragon Slayer, Dragon's Lair has had essentially their version of a shark tank. And so those ideas that came out of that weren't just, hey, this is a cool idea. Maybe a couple of units pick it up. Those were generally briefed out to either the chief of staff of the army, the 18th Airborne CG, and some major power players who could actually implement these things into materiel, into training, into doctrine. Some of them weren't materiel solutions. Some of them were just, hey, we need to fix the process on this. And it turns out that's a huge efficiency booster or it's a huge cost savings. So things like that are great. And I would consider a lot of times, a lot of times those tend to end up being smaller wins. And so to your question though, like how do you scale it up in this enormous organization? Half a million soldiers, half a million in the active force. So how do you then scale that across that enormous behemoth of a bureaucracy? And so that kind of comes from multi-level approaches, not multi-level marketing like LuLaRoe, but multi-level approaches where we will have to work on the grassroots that's taking place for the innovation side. And a lot of times we focus before on gaining senior leadership recognition of these challenges and emerging tech and trends that you're seeing down at the grassroots. And so we might get senior leader buy-in, and then we have down at the lower level, so to speak, although they're they're the ones that matter to me the most, but to our war fighters, to our, our lower um, enlisted and, and junior officers who are innovating on all this, that's great. So we have senior leaders who are giving the marching orders, innovation that's happening at the grassroots, but you have a big old frozen middle right in between. And the frozen middle often does not recognize they are the frozen middle, and they're certainly not going to admit to it. And so how do I get field grade officers up to the kind of kernel level as well that are really the major power players who are going to control their unit's day-to-day operations, who are going to control not only you know what is procured, but what is actually integrated into operations and everything else. And I have to win them over too. So we have to kind of create, and this is one of the things Mad Scientist tries to do a lot, is create the connective tissue between all those different levels. Because senior commanders, if the chief of staff of the army, if General Milley, the chairman and joint chiefs of staff, turned around tomorrow and gave marching orders and the orders were there. The funding is there. The organizational structure is there. But if you don't have buy-in from the actual power players down at those levels, the ones who make stuff move, then you're just wasting your time because they can ride out senior leaders. They can wait until there's turnover. They can wait until they've decided that this is no longer a hot topic. And so you have to win 
over, you know, what was previously considered that frozen middle because, and a lot of times the thing about it is, and we kind of talked about this earlier, just kind of circling back to that is that you can't just break everything. So you're never going to win over those individuals, those leaders, those decision makers by pointing a finger in their face and telling them how wrong they are and how everything they're doing is wrong. You will never get there. I could be the brightest futurist in the world. I could put out predictions that beat Ray Kurzweil by a country mile. But nobody cares if I come at them and attack essentially their day-to-day lives. So what you have to recognize is, and this is where a lot of times I talk about mad scientists and futurism in general, it sounds really hippie-like, but you really have to include empathy in that. So understanding that a lot of times that frozen middle is not being obstinate purposefully. They're not trying to stand in the way of progress. They're not uh, maybe a group of Luddites that just doesn't want to deal with this. But a lot of times they have day-to-day responsibilities, soldiers' lives in their hands, and a lot of other things that it is far easier to keep going on the trajectory you're on, on that linear train path uh, or you know linear railroad that you're on for operations than to disrupt all that and say, so it is easier to say, this is the way we've always done it and to keep going. And, and I think it's important to then empathize with that and then find that middle ground, find where whenever I'm trying to you know essentially convince someone of the trends that are occurring, that the change character of warfare matters to them, I have to use empathy to understand how they see it. Why would it matter to them? Because otherwise, it just sounds like a bunch of folks who have been to too many war colleges or too many high-level courses speaking from Mount Pius about how everything should be. And so it's really important when you're working in the futures game, so to speak, or working in this ecosystem, that if you want to change things, then meet people where they're at. It's really interesting what you're saying. I, I guess in way it's as opposed to tell them is to show and to go and understand a bit about what they're dealing with rather than go, well, just here's your quick fix, mate. Just do that. Yeah. Bring them as opposed to get show the, them. Exactly. Bring them, get the buy-in because the buy-in matters because I've had plenty of briefings on uh, the future operational environment where I come into an organization, I brief them on everything we've looked at over the last you know many years now and explain all this and people get excited and they love to hear about it. And there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm. But what happens as soon as I go away? They go back to their desk and their boss says, shut up, get back to work. And no, I'm not going to talk about rearranging all this, (laughs) changing our concept of operations. So if you don't get that buy-in from various people that are are the decision makers, the stakeholders, if you don't get that buy-in, then it's just words. It just falls flat. Everybody gets excited for a hot minute and then nothing actually comes of it. Yeah. Yeah, look, there's too much to go to cover in 40 <laughs> minutes or so. And I think we've got through about half of what we thought we'd talk about. Apologies. It's absolutely been excellent. And I think we need to come back to this. Some of what we're trying to do is just about sharing ideas and a little window into people's worlds. That's all this is. And it's really fascinating. I don't feel like I fully understood it. And I think that's a good thing. It makes me hungry for more. So I think that's, we're going to have to be that's, happy. That's fantastic because that's what we want to do. That's a big part of it is provoke thought to provoke conversation. There is no solution. That's the thing about the future is 
it's constantly evolving. And so it takes constant effort. So there's generally some studies that your audience, when you leave them after a talk or a podcast or something like that, they're usually going to remember no more than three things. So I always leave people when I'm done with be bold, be disruptive, and be relentless. Well, I think we'll leave it on that note. And just thank you again for your time. And um, I'm sure we need to get the uh, Army Mad Scientist group more intertwined with what we're doing. So, so look, look forward to more discussions UK, in the future. UK faculty, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just uh, sign me up and I'll open the UK branch of uh, Mad Scientist. <laughs> My biggest takeaway, other than him being a thoroughly nice bloke, knows his stuff, and have, I believe created something really exciting. My biggest takeaway, and, and it was nice to see, is the outside-the-box thinking, which we in defense aspire to, but maybe not always achieve regularly enough. And having an organization that's quite literally remit is to think outside the box, get other perspectives, and apply them to military problems. Yeah, big tick from me. Yeah, and there's some really good themes there because, you know, we don't do enough sort of cross-pollination. It's really easy to stay in, in our own cap badges or little military fiefdoms or, you know, if you're involved in land, you don't really see much of air. So generating that cross-thought is going to be really important. Definitely going to look to try and do some, some teaming with them, see if there's any projects we can cross-contaminate on as well. So watch this space for that. Cross-contaminate? Is that, well, you're not happy with that. Cross-contaminate. <laughs> it's a new term now. <laughs> Cross pollinate, maybe cross cross poison, <laughs> cross poison. Right, should we go into the news. Well, I can't <laughs> wait till to, to, to Chernobyl. This whole thing. <laughs> Talked about destroy. You to be disruptive. Chernobyl was disruptive. I tell you that. <laughs> Let's cross To save my blushes, shall we go straight into the news? Yeah, so at this point, we now speak to Andy, who is from MS&T magazine. He's been out there in uh, iTech as well. He's going to give us the, the latest going-ons from the show floor. Andy, how are you doing? I am indeed, yeah. An excellent trip. Most enjoyable. Came back on the train. It's the way to travel. Uh, yeah, I looked at that because you go that way and you see the train to London. And you go, should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Top marks, Andy, for your eco-credentials. Colin, yeah. working proud. Guys, yeah, I have to say that was partly why I did it that way. Yeah, but it was good. Happy to hear it, Andy. So uh, you're both glowing after it sounds like a pretty eventful event. Let me ask you both independently, what was your kind of biggest takeaway from iTech 2023, uh, starting with Andy? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Well, I, I think it kind of goes without saying that when you have a conference or, or an event like that, people come together. But And that was good. I had a really uh, a full-on three days speaking to people and listening to people. So it was fantastic. But uh, I mean, some of the headlines that came out in no particular order, the Finnish company Vario, who, as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, produced professional uh, XR headsets. I've teamed with a company called Immersive Display. And maybe MOUs isn't the most exciting thing. But I think for me, is the fact that you'd think were two companies that are actually in vicious competition. You know, is it a dome or is it a headset, for example, for pilot training, uh, are actually coming together and trying to combine their technologies. So for me, that was uh, very interesting. And there were a number of other announcements or presentations about teaming. So BA Systems and their project Odyssey, which I went to a briefing about a whole number of companies they're working with to not try and do it all themselves, but bring in the best of uh, technologies as they see it and try and produce principally for air, but a multi-domain setup. So that was uh, that was interesting. And also companies like Bohemia working with Black Shark AI have come together to, of course, can't go too far without mentioning AI, can we? But Yeah, and no, it's an interesting thing that I saw. So isn't Black Shark AI, maybe this is wrong, but aren't they building things on the Unreal Engine? 
it was interesting to know Epic Games stand was right opposite uh, Bohemia. I didn't read too much into that, but uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, but I, I think Bohemia are indeed working with all. I think they recognise that they're not the only engine in town now. In fact, it's specifically their mantle new product that will ingest data and push it out to various engines, including on Unreal. Nice. Hopefully I've got that correct. And that, yeah, there were various other teaming. But I, I think uh, the other one that I saw was the rise of XR. I know XR doesn't seem so last decade now, but it, every year there seems to be more XR across the stand and not just so something you play around with actually integrated into, into training systems. It's happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to the first, and maybe it's already happened, I'm not aware of it, but the first enterprise level implementation of XR for a kind of a wide scale use case within defense. I'm quite looking forward to that. What kind of use case do you have in mind? I don't mind anything, as long as it's wide scale and it's, and it's, you know, it's not a trial or a bespoke use case, you know, for, for let's say pilot training, wherever it might be, but an actual wide scale implementation of X, XR. And that's when it will have broken through. Yeah. So this is the, the Tom challenge. This you're putting it, laying it out there for defense. It'll be a medal. I think I've started to see people you know use it for like almost into rehearsal mission rehearsal but mm-hmm. yeah the whole cycle from well, start to finish so yeah i think uh, but it's early days for that there might not be a medal but maybe a challenge coin that's something that you know <laughs> keeping in my back pocket for, for this season well maybe we'll look at that for season two let me know if you want a challenge coin for the warfighter podcast and we'll get that going colin over to you my friend well well maybe maybe i have a, a challenge i think i've got a few few dark corners i can go and find some stuff for you tom okay um, but yeah uh, you, want a challenge thought, coin. <laughs> you can get one for free mate <laughs> <laughs> yeah th- i've thought so show again it's all all just depends on who you meet but definitely a building sense of collaboration so our memory is obviously slightly rotis tinted but you know in the past it was very much like we're a large prime we've got all the answers they all work for us and now it's very much obviously the word ecosystem was mentioned quite a lot and when you're a supplier you've got to be flexible and say well look we're not going to offer everything for every solution we're going to find our little niche and i think working well with others is probably more important than you having a silver bullet technology and that was a sort of sensation i got in terms of talking to people they recognize you won't just go to one provider and go they do everything <laughs> you've got to build it a piece by piece and an integration that'll be the um, the common theme Mm. I thought it was a serious event. You know, there was some really great briefings from Ukraine side. They really uh, started. I know that's been a theme of ours in this podcast series, but about getting things done really quickly. So some really serious, challenging points made about that. And I think because of its size, it was possible to speak to a large proportion of the people there. Although even then I didn't manage to do that. I'm sorry. Anyone who didn't want to or did what did or didn't want to speak to me, <laughs> I thought it was really uh, really good three days. Yeah, I, I mean, in fairness to the organisers, it was actually fairly slick, small in floor space, but well attended. And I think that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of exhibitors if the right people turn up, and that's yeah. what makes it. I think I mean that's been a really great wrap up. Sadly, Andy, this is our our last episode of season one. Now, season two is in the works in the background, but Colin and I would like to thank you for your Herculean efforts to keep us up to date as to what's going on in the world. Before we kind of sign off for this bit of the podcast, keen to get your reflections on this season and where you felt the technology's been going and the succinct sure. as you want to be. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> but uh, so it's, I think it's, it's a great chance to talk about the news and uh, what it all means. And I, you know, I think it's just another channel of news, which is fantastic. There has been a lot going on. We started the this podcast uh, or we reported on the news uh, from November, which is that six months? And 
obviously we can't go too far without mentioning AI and ChatGPT. But I think I've heard people talking about AI news. It, it is a bit like a, a bucket of balls and you throw them out and as a dog, you know, which one do you go after? So there's been so much news. But I think that's the whole, how do you keep up with what's going on? As, as a military customer, which I guess is and indeed, you know, as a defence industry, how do you keep up when things are moving so quickly? And it does, everything seems to be accelerating. So maybe I'll come back to technology, but I think also the training need, it doesn't go without saying, I mean, there is a war going on and it kind of focuses the mind on actually how do we do things quickly? Look at Sudan and people having to go there in a kind of scenario which perhaps they hadn't imagined. So I think as a community, we really need to have discussions around moving more quickly. So uh, perhaps that's the, something I would like to see us discussing more in season two. I think also multi-domain. I know it just seems like a policy statement, but you know we really do need to get the multi-domain sorted out. It seems interesting. <laughs> I could use other words. Why we keep buying these systems in stovepipes? Actually, they should all work together. And, you know, you can blame standards and so forth, but there needs to be more commonality, a more unified purpose in the way we buy systems, I think. Going back to technology, AI, I don't think we need to say too much, except I don't think it's put us any of us out of work just yet, has it? Maybe season three will be AI. I don't know. But <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, of course, it's uh, hugely important. And well, maybe we didn't see too much at iTech, but maybe we will next year or other events, but it's certainly creeping in there. I, I think it's also interesting in terms of keeping up the meta verse word it sort of was sort of slowing down when we started this in november i think it's it's on the uptick again it was mentioned quite a few times last week so but whether you like the word or not it just says well how do you keep up i mean what is the trend i think that was interesting the training need i think we need to do things faster we need to think multi-domain out of the box and technology yeah the challenges of keeping up which hopefully this podcast is helping you to do that to an extent perfect Thanks, Andy, for that. And I think you're right. There's another layer to all this in terms of what these things actually mean. Some things aren't going away, but we need to dig into what the implications of it are as opposed to just we're going to use it. So, uh, no, thanks for all your efforts. Looking forward to next season. Fantastic. Great to be involved. Thanks, gents. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to miss our time with Andy. Listeners won't know, but there's, there's the 10 minutes of news update and then there is the hour of discussion about what's going on in the background. So, which is a bi-weekly event for me now. Well, yeah, and it's it's always good to get his his point of view and um, not just the party line on on the news. So that's that's quite refreshing. <laughs> so this is the end of season one. I think it's gone all right. Yeah, first season. Next season, the training wheels come off, and we'll we'll be sort of taking a, a brief break while we plan for the next set of episodes and really just see how this this might develop. Yeah, there's a couple of little other ideas that are bubbling away under the surface as well. So that's a little teaser, something for to look forward to. We've learned a lot, haven't we, from this? We've learned a lot about, you know, you, the audience, what you're expecting and want to hear. Also, we've learned a lot, like, for example, don't start a podcast without planning it. That's a, that's a good learning point that we've now learned. It wasn't zero planning. That would be unfair. <laughs> well, I suppose we, had a, we had a meeting where we said, shall we launch a podcast? And then it happened. So, um, that, so yeah. that is called agile development. <laughs> it's called gray hairs. But I hope you listener really enjoyed it. We honestly have really appreciated your support. Yeah. And going around the show at iTech, just hearing people's thoughts and feedback. And it was very heartwarming. We'll try and stay grounded, won't we, Tom? <laughs> try to. But, you know, I've been practicing my signature.
So that is the end of season one of the Warfighter podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with us, please, uh, there's a number of ways. LinkedIn is probably the best. If you go to search for Warfighter podcast on LinkedIn, and that's where you can find us, you can follow and subscribe to the newsletter, or you can send us an email, which is contact at warfighterpodcast.com. That's all from me. What about you, Colin? Yeah, all from me. Thank you. See you on the other side. <laughs>